This is Psychic Warfare. Welcome back, my friends, to Psychic Warfare, the podcast where spirituality and philosophy collide with heavy metal and rock and roll. I am your host, Chris Keelick, and thank you for joining me once again on another journey into the lives and minds of the most iconic musicians in heavy music. Just as a reminder, if you enjoy the podcast and these conversations with the artists you love, it would mean the world if you subscribed and followed the podcast on your platform of choice. Also, you can follow me and the show at Pod on Twitter and at Psychic Warfare Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. So if you get a chance, follow the show there for updates and happenings on all things Psychic Warfare. This week, I am so stoked to have Jake Dusick, vocalist of industrial and noise rock band Health, although their sound really stretches beyond all genre boundaries. What is clear is that these guys represent the diversity of sound and vision that heavy music can embody at its best. Their collaborations with rock and metal giants like Nine Inch Nails, Deftones, and Lamb of God, as well as with the best and brightest of new heavy music culture like Poppy, Backwash, Horror, and Ghost Mane, prove that they have their finger on the pulse of the entire scene, past and future, and their vast original and remix catalog demonstrate their immense talents for songcraft and vast creativity. Every song is truly a journey with these guys. It's an experience unlike any other, and I am so excited to welcome Jake to the Psychic Warfare podcast today. Jake, it's a pleasure to have you here today. Thank you for coming on. Oh, thank you. Thanks for extending the invite. Absolutely. So, I always start with this. How are you feeling at this moment in time, mentally, physically, and spiritually? I'm feeling better today than I have in the last few days. And you, you and I were just catching up on this before we started recording, but um, I'm like just recently getting over COVID. And then on top of that, I have a three-year-old son, which people are asking me these questions like, how are you feeling like in terms of the, the illness or in terms mm. of um, just generally sort of the question you asked them when you have a kid, like a young kid, it's really sort of hard to divine why you feel or what you feel. If it's the chicken or the egg, because you kind of yeah. always feel fucked up. Right. So it's like, <laughs> I don't know, like I could be kind of run down because of the, the illness or because of the weather or whatever, or maybe I'm just feeling kind of down, but it's also just like, I have this sort of life force sucking entity in my home. That's also amazing. It's just like, he just needs me all the time. And it's this sort of constant um, transfer of energy. So yeah, I, I feel okay. I feel pretty good relatively. Um, but the caveat would be that, for me, at least, maybe some people feel experience this differently, but it, it's hard to your equilibrium at rest when you have a really young kid in your house is never like really tranquil. You know, it's kind of just there's passing eyes of the storm and there's not a lot of downtime. So mm. that's sort of my day to day at this stage. I mean, that's totally understandable. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious going back you know, what was your spiritual upbringing like? Did you grow up in a household that held a certain faith or was spirituality something personal that you kind of developed and discovered over time on your own and through your own journey? Well, I think that it'll be an interesting conversation. Um, and I think that's kind of why John was asking me to, because there is a lot of, maybe spiritual is the wrong word, but philosophical elements to the okay. lyrical content of the band. And I would say for the majority of my life, I would characterize 
my spiritual engagement as zero, <laughs> like that. I'm not a spiritual person and I was not brought up to be one. I was, I would say I would, I was brought up in a city, pretty typical suburban American, um, what I would call like fair weather fan religion type right. thing, which like is Chris, like, like Christmas and Easter Christian kind of thing. I mean, those are just, just like holidays, but I mean, kind of more in the sense of like, I never, ever went to church mm, okay. um, unless someone fucking died. You know what I mean? And it's <laughs> yeah. like when someone yeah. dies, it's like, oh, they're in a better place. Just as sort of like a palliative um, way to process death. You know, so it's like when my grandpa died, it's like, oh, he's in a better place. And, but it's like, we're not, you know, there's no catechism. There's no transfiguration of the flesh like i'm not going and doing communion i don't yeah. really have it. and so at a, at, i um i went to like a like a episcopalian school when i was a little kid and we did chapel every morning which you know episcopalian is like the least restrictive along with unitarianism the least restrictive of all christian doctrines so there's no fire and brimstone like, it's not like I'm growing up like a Calvinist or a Mormon or something where it's just like, hey, you know, like you might be preordained to burn in hell. Like there's no, there wasn't any. You're fucked like unless that. you do A, B and C, right? Yeah, exactly. Or like if you're a Calvinist or something where it's just like, hey, you're fucked anyway. And decided, <laughs> but, you know, you still have to try your best because you don't know. Um, so anyway, you know, I didn't have anything like that. But I, you know, I, we did when I was a really little kid, we did the Lord's prayer every day. And I think that I kind of liked the formality of it in a way. And it was mm. quiet in the morning. And, and, and then I can't remember at what age, but it was precocious and young where I just sort of had a realization the same way that you would about Santa Claus or the Easter bunny, where I was just like, Oh, this doesn't make any sense at all that there right. would be, I think, you know, I, I haven't had this conversation in a long time, but I think one of the earliest things I remembered, I've always had a hard time sleeping, like even as a young person, um, which meant I spent a fair amount of time lying awake at night and trying to pass the time. And from sort of like a solipsist or like Cartesian, like I think therefore my I am consciousness perspective, I just remember being like, I mean, like really fucking little probably before I could even really vocalize or articulate this, I remember thinking how long it was to get through the night or to fall asleep, you know, when I was having a hard time sleeping and then thinking about the notion that heaven was non-temporal. There's no time. It's time immemorial. It's, it's infinite. Right. Right. And just being aware of the fact that like my current state, of existence and perception of reality was so disengaged from that notion that the idea of living forever seemed like pretty much meaningless because my perception would have to be so distinctive from what I was actually feeling as like a, a human being right? that, that whatever I would be preserving, like what, and what I think people are a lot of times trying to, you know, is like, to palliate their fear of death and that life is meaningless and then everything is just over. Yeah. So it's like, Oh no, you're going to live on forever. And I was just thinking like, okay, if I'm living on forever, 
I don't see how it can even be remotely like this. And if it's not yeah. remotely like this, then I'm not extending nor escaping. Like it's a total, like it would be a com total, completely different state of consciousness. of something. And, and like in that. such that would be like its own death. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, like you could play a thought experiment of like, okay, what happens if you wake up in this sort of Oliver Sacks acute neurological state and you have no memory of your life and you can't make any new memories, you know, like, but you're still you. Yeah. Are you still like, have you in effect died in terms of how we define the self and things yeah, like that? Yeah, exactly. I that brings up a lot of questions. Thought, yeah. I just remember having that thought very, very young and just being like, I don't see how this works. And that, <laughs> that would, that would bring me maybe, and I don't want to jump ahead of your questions. No, no. But that would kind of bring me towards like maybe the first sense of myself in a philosophical way as like a pragmatist where I was just like, okay, like there's all kinds of different things that I might not know. I'm not going to be so egotistical to say like, I'm an absolute atheist because, you know, I don't want to be guilty of pronouncing the fact that there's no doubt the same way that um, a monotheistic religious person would, but to the best of my ability to observe the way the rational and functional world works, probably not. Like, what does that mean for me? It's like, just trying to, just trying to fucking navigate being alive, you yeah. know? And so that was sort of the germination of that. And then once I got a little older and I'm like in chapel, I was just like, Oh, okay. I'm not, afraid of any of this like i'm not especially specifically i'm not afraid of not uh i'm not afraid of in addition the social pressure of like my grandmother who is you know like watched billy graham on tv and things like that you know i got to that stage of being curious and comfortable enough with myself to if she brought up god or something i would be like i don't think that that's real you know, and then she would be like scared for me kind of thing. But I, it happened to me at an early age. And so that would be like the earliest I could characterize yeah. my spiritual life was sort of the lack of one. I was going to ask like what the, what the reaction was like if this was spoken out loud or obviously you, you obviously voiced this to your grandmother, but like where your parents were just like, you know what, we're going to like wash our hands of this and kind of like let him, let him do his thing. It's not hurting anybody. He's got to find his own way anyway. Or was there, like you said, there was this sense of like, oh boy, like we need to kind of like course correct no because you know like i said i grew up in a pretty um laissez-faire involved yeah. like i don't think that i think that the first time i ever remember querying my dad about religion he seemed like completely agnostic on the subject like like his mother was like totally sure that there was a god and she'd had a stroke a heart attack and cancer and all her siblings were dead and she was very like not afraid of dying and thought she was going to see her loved ones in heaven and so there was that. And yeah. I would have never said anything that like she she passed away when I was about 16. I would have never said anything like this to her because I think it would have bothered. It would have frightened her. But in asking my father about it, you know, he was kind of just like, I mean, who knows? Like, doesn't really seem like there would be. And that would be about as involved as that conversation ever got with okay. my father. And then my mother, who passed away in 2018, I think she... She very much was sort of like I was saying that kind of fair weather spiritualist. And she was very emotional in her reasoning. So I think that there was probably a dialectic thing going on in her where it was like on a lot of levels, she didn't, especially when she was ill, 
Right. I don't think she really thought, oh, I'm going to go to some afterlife. But I think that then there was another part of her that was like, and she very much cared so much about other people that I think that it was almost maybe more for her up until that point, the way she dealt with it, it was that that was how she processed losing loved ones. Mm. That's about as spiritual as my upbringing was. Gotcha. Yeah. And I mean, I, it sounds like, I mean, I, I don't want to categorize what what you currently believe in in the state of where you're at right now, anything other than your own words. But what do you find yourself kind of believing in at this point in your life that guides how you kind of view the world that you exist in and how you carry yourself as a human being within it? Like what feels most true to you? Are you someone that is like totally locked into the present moment when you say you're a pragmatist you're like okay all i have is the same thing that everybody else has which is like this very moment which is a very like kind of zen buddhist kind of way of looking at things but i'm not sure if you kind of just like eschew all kind of belief systems and you're just like you know what i'm totally just i don't i don't really know and i'm just kind of you know existing to the best of my ability i mean i think that there is a tenuous understanding at best of what consciousness is in the first place really all we really know is that it it is the totality of our experience and that that experience of reality, which is sort of an ironic word based on how we come to understand it when we're younger versus when you investigate it a little, is completely connected to the organism that we are. Like we're a mammal, we perceive color and light and space and different things. If you take away different things like, so even when you look at, like, if you believe in science, which I do. I, which I, I do. You know, <laughs> yeah. And so to me, like, science is the best way to interpret the world that we can. But mathematics, physics, chemistry, all these different things, it still has to come representationally to us through our own perception. Right. And so that the reality that it's describing, even though we can re reproduce things and affect change, like, we can save lives with medicine. We can, uh, you know, investigate Predict earthquakes. Yeah. space with telescopes. There's all these kind of things that are like undeniably that we're doing. But at the same time, there are the limitations, of course, that like we're interpreting this through the lens of our own perception. Our and, senses. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that those senses are immutably tied to what kind of organism that we are. Um, and so I guess what I would say is, in my, in my later, as I've gotten older, when I was younger, you know, I very much would characterize myself as a existentialist in the mm. sort of Camus tradition of like, there is no inherent meaning, there is no right or wrong in the universe, and that we define for ourselves what we believe in. And so we, we give birth to and characterize our own systems of meaning and belief. Right. Um, so for you, like, th oh. there's no objective reality. It's all very, it's all subjective reality in a lot of yes. ways. Um, and, and as I got older, I realized that in the traditional strictures of existentialism, you might be hearing my son. Hey, you me. know what? He's ha having an existential moment. That's okay. Yeah, he's going through it. <laughs> I sort of realized, that, you know, there's an additional dimension of existentialism that it's like, it try to, tries to give the, the power to the individual to decide and make that providence, that determination, maybe some self-determinism of like, the individual is free to define their own meaning, right? Rather than meaning being given to you by God or governments or right. institutions. And of course, I would 
the addendum that I would make to Matt, that is that like, we're not even, we're not in charge of our own free will. Like the idea of free will is an illusion. If you had infinite data on any given moment, and then that moment could be recreated. I feel like you will do the same thing a billion times in a row. Yeah. If there's no variation. Right. And because like all those preset things have happened, it's like, but from the pragmatic sensibility, how useful is that in my life? Like, obviously I still believe that people need to be accountable for things. I believe that like we have to. You use those, those things where you said we can't affect change. We can't affect things in certain ways. You have to use those within your capabilities to promote good. So I guess from that, from one sense that I, I guess I, I, um, from my youth on until now would be that like, all I know is that what we have is our own experiences and based on my ability to suffer or to feel love or fear or sadness, I try to use that as the best beyond like any sort of enforced morality that comes from the ideas of society or, or cause all those things change, you know, they change historically. That's what I mean. Like the moment in which you're defining for me, my own life, it's like, I, music has been a central thing in my entire life, yep. but I don't think that's because like I'm this unique entity that's made this decision. I think it's reactionary to the time in which I live, the place in which I've been born, the fortunate circumstances and many things. But what I do believe is that when you understand your own capacity to feel pain or joy, you have the empathy to understand that you don't want to hurt other people because you know what it feels like to be hurt or to be scared or to, you know, yeah. and that's been my, I guess the, 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 the answer that I'm giving is like, how do you navigate a reality in which you don't believe that there's any cosmological right or wrong or any real functional meaning? Like I believe in evolution. I believe in most of the reasons that we react the way that we do things have a certain biological basis that at this stage with how far divorced we are from how we evolved um, are almost kind of abstracted and at odds with each other. But why we're mammals and how that all happened, man, I don't fucking know. All I know is that functionally we are experiencing this as much as best as I can tell. Like there could be this sort of like Schrodinger's like is every when I drive home at night, are all the lights on and the houses there for me to think that there are people there or are there actually people? And they're like, there's there's different thought experiments you can play. Oh, yeah, of course. But coming back to the pragmatism thing, I guess what I have, how I've tried to navigate I've had a lot of issues with, um, I mean, I don't know if depression is like the right, and it's something that I've investigated in my, in my music a lot as a way to have catharsis about it is that in, in that I don't believe, I very much do believe that like what you have is the moment and that that moment in the present, not even the sense of self, like I, as I've gotten older, I have investigated mindfulness practices and, and looked at, sort of a Buddhist, the secular bu- Buddhist view, not right. like a religious tradition. Yeah. Uh, that the self is in a lot of ways centrally an illusion and that all we are, that you're not anymore in control of the next thought you're going to have than the next sound you hear coming out side of your window. Yeah. But we tend to inhabit these thoughts and think like, oh, well, this is me and I am. Yes. Somehow my brain is separate from my body. And these are two separate experiences of my corporal reality and my spiritual and mental reality. And of course, I would say that like 
they're all one unified field. And then that illusion of self is perpetrated by interpreting them as separate. But even within that, we are having these experiences and we do feel pain and fear and sadness. And, yeah. and, and so I'm trying to navigate. It's a little bleak to just think like, okay, like we're mammalian organisms that at some point evolved a higher consciousness because it made us effective at proliferating our species. Yeah. And that higher awareness has these massive fallouts and some of them are incredibly amazing there's art and literature and technology and and consequences also and then there's <laughs> and there's terrible consequences like tribalism genocide and and then just on the individual level pain like awareness of and i mean like philosophical philosophical and spiritual pain of knowing that you're going to die and everyone that you know is going to die and that is being set against this autonomic, incredibly primitive drive to keep yourself alive so that you can have kids and so that the species can go on. And like all things with evolution, unless it has a directly um, detrimental effect on the ability of the species to thrive, and by thrive, I mean just to procreate, there's really no reason to to change it, you know, and this can be viewed from multiple different perspectives and advantages from small to large. Like, like I'm talking about, I had a kid, like infants have no wake sleep cycle in man in, in human babies. Right? right. What does that effect have on parents? It fucking destroys you. Right. But like, what would the impetus be to fix it evolutionarily? There's none so long as the kids survive effectively. That's a small example. When you expand that sample to be more vast from a philosophical perspective, it's like the only reason that we would evolve any sort of biological ability to attenuate the destructive nature of our own psychological and spiritual awareness would be if there was so much suicide or so many different things that people are just like, oh, I'm not going to procreate. Like, what's the fucking point? You know, I'm just going to bring some other kid into the world. So there's no like there's no impetus for to change that. So you get kind of like your instincts and your own um, biology is at odds with yourself because you get stuck holding this bag of shit of, well, nothing means anything. And, you know, I'm just like this collection of, I'm just like, a, I'm a biological process, you know, to best, yeah. the best of my ability to tell. But then because of the fact that you are a biological process and you want to stay alive, ideally, um, for for black biological reasons, you aren't actually clearly looking at it as like, oh, well, if there's no right or wrong, if there's no meaning, then there isn't bad or good, right? Yep. But but we end up feeling, and I feel this very much in myself, I can't help but feel that that is like this cosmic abyss or like this negative because I'm just like, well, nothing's going to, you know, like I have a child now. Um, I have my life's work in music that I've cared so much about. I have my loved ones. And it's like, it's all just like, you know, we're indistinguishable in my view from insects or bacteria or any other. Just all life. 
yeah, all life, except where we have evolved this higher form of consciousness that, that puts us in this sort of conundrum and navigating that and trying to have it not like you want to be clear eyed and be able to be like, maybe this is just the wrong, you know, I've spent a lot of time thinking about like, what is meaning and like, why are we here? And like, maybe that's just a stupid fucking question. Maybe it's all, you know, it sounds like you're, you're thinking like, these are all just symbols and concepts. Like we're, we're so attached to concepts of things, but, but those concepts are so important to kind of our human existence you know, and, I, and you touched on this a little bit. I was going to, you already answered it. I was going to ask like, is this ever, it doesn't seem very much for you, but is it ever, is it, is it comforting at all to like, you know, use this as a, as a model to explain how you do, like what you personally define as like evil or bad. Like you're like, these people are going to do what they're going to do. Like, it's just, it's just in, it's in the nature. It's in our evolution, like evil as a concept or bad as a concept will exist until the dying of the earth because people you know it's just it there's it's not this is not a uh it's a predetermined thing in a sense like what you were speaking about earlier it doesn't seem like it's very comforting to some people it might be but to you it doesn't seem like that well i guess what i yeah i mean that's that's it and when you talk about this in a um given context obviously it can become extremely uncomfortable because if you're navigating you're saying like there's no right or wrong right someone's gonna be like oh so hitler is the same as a person who volunteers for the homeless and helps people. It's like, which is a completely understandable and emotional reaction. And that's why I bring in the idea of pragmatism. Yes. And, and my notion right. that I know my morally guiding foundation is that like through my own experience, my ability to experience suffering, why would I ever want that to occur or happen to anyone else? Right. Which is like, so functionally for me, I just want to do as little damage as possible to anybody else's experience in right. life. And, and that's the thing that like, and of course I very much believe that people are accountable for their actions <laughs> in the pragmatic sense of the here and now of what we are experiencing, like the whole deal that we enter into in civilization is to sort of try to um, abdicate ourselves from the Hobbesian, like life is short, brutish. Nasty brutish. Yeah. 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 You know, and so like we're entering into this, like there's all these frustrations, there's all these diplomatic sort of compromises that we make, you know? And the reason we do that is to try to accept ourselves from the cold, hard rule of nature, where nature would be the perfect example. It's when a lot you of the look jungle, it, baby. <laughs> yeah. And when you look at nature, it's like the idea of wrong or right is not really, it's just not, it's not even, it's just survival of the fittest which is a fucking raw deal. And so yeah. as we evolved a higher intellectual capacity, we have tried to do the best that we can to accept ourselves from that. And it's this sort of rolling experience where, and anybody who's been alive long enough, you can just see that right or wrong, good and bad moral values, they keep just changing. And, and ideally they keep changing, hopefully to, to my ideal, to just that understanding of like, hey, let's just like try to do the least amount of harm to one another as possible because we all can experience pain. And that's sort of my guiding principle of I'm not a nihilist. You know what I mean? Like there is nihilism shot through through some of the some of the lyrical content of the band. And the way I would deal with that is it's like that's my trying to combat the negative fatalistic 
aspects that my thinking can have on how I approach being alive, you know, like to not like, how do you figure out how to navigate this? Like how to stay alive? Like, like logically speaking, if you didn't have an innate, and there's a lot of discussion about this with AI now, is that like, like a truly sentient self-aware AI that like, at what stage does it develop self-preservation in the sort of Skynet sense but is there a stage where it would be like, oh, like it's not worth being conscious, you know? There's too much. Like there's a movement. Sucks, yo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, there's there's a movement called anti-natalism, which is like the most German, like fucking, you know, like um, I'm trying to think about like the best. Uh, and a good encapsul the the pop culture encapsulation of it would be like Matthew McConaughey's character in the first season of True Detective, which it's like being alive as a human and conscious of yourself and your own mortality is a raw deal and that ultimately being born is a bummer and that the best thing that we could do is just to stop creating more of these because the way that they the way the philosophical movement actually talks about it is they talk about it in the form of preference frustration so even if you take it outside of like humans because that's another thing that we do we're like oh well like the animals in the jungle they're not worried about like, oh, I'm going to die someday. It's like, that's true. But a deer is still getting eaten alive by a fucking wolf. That's not good. You know what I mean? Right. So the idea is that the majority of all life on the planet that's sentient spends the majority of their existence in preference frustration. That sounds like a very clinical and maybe like not dramatic term, but preference frustration could be anything from like, you're usually mostly looking for food all the time because you're hungry and you need to not die. Or if you're in a social animal troop, it's like you're trying to find yourself in the social hierarchy of baboons or fucking groundlings or human society, or you're getting eaten by another animal or you're dying of a disease or it's so cold during winter, you might not, you know what the point being, that the most of being alive is fucking lame. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's, <laughs> you're having, it's this concept that I think you're, you're speaking of where at a certain point, because of this burden of our own, you know, consciousness of existence or of mortality, that at a certain point we're like, well, we have this. So every social structure and every kind of concept that we cling to was formed out of this. Well, we must be different. We must be, we must like, be different in some way if we have this if we're if we are burdened with this kind of awareness and this sort of consciousness that seems different from the rest of the animal and plant kingdom so forming all of these structures and these systems is kind of born out of that and that doesn't make all that those all those all those things wrong or or bad if you want to put bad in quotation marks it, that's another concept but uh because it helps in a utilitarian sense in a perfect world maybe create a certain world that is better than what it would be if it was like you said law of the jungle for a, a larger majority of people than not but yeah and there are always anomalous kind of people that don't have empathy that don't kind of develop that like well i also feel pain and you feel pain so i want to avoid guilt dealing that pain to you or seeing you feel that pain there's always we, that's and that's what we struggle with is kind of seeing that like anomalous like why don't these people feel empathy or why don't these this certain subset of people seem to have a 
sense of empathy, but it is all subjective T truth, which makes it even harder to kind of like fucking get straight. So it's, it is all just a giant mind fuck really, but that sounds kind of like how you're laying it out a little bit. Well, I mean, it's such a difficult thing too, because it's like what you can expect from people. And I'm, you know, this would be like an elitist kind of thing is it's like, there's going to be limitations people have intellectually for their ability. Um, and that intellectual ability to, to sort of digest dissolving these ideas of these structures of like uh, traditional morality, right or wrong, the tenets of evolutionary biology, whatever, you know, like you have to have like a certain level of realism of like what you can expect from people. And like, and now I guess what's sort of so disturbing is that we, we are trending more and more towards back into sort of tribalism where we define we nullify the things that we're talking about, like that we can understand that one person just as myself can experience pain or fear or suffering as well. They're the other, you know, there's something else you see it in the political landscape of this country now, where it's like, if I'm on the left side, then that's my tribe and the right side, they're not even fucking people and vice versa. You know what I mean? Which makes it so easy to, to sort of, discount each other and operate without empathy and without um, forgiveness and the understanding that like life is incredibly complicated and confusing and the nature of reality isn't even set. And that's like a big conversation to have with people. So that's why I try to boil it down to like, Hey, like if the last, if the one thing that we could talk about is, is like, you know what it's like to feel pain, physical pain, spiritual pain, emotional pain, and to be afraid. And so does everybody else. So anything that you would do that would cause someone else to feel that, the roadmap for why you can understand why you wouldn't want to do that is because you know what it feels like. I was gonna say, and regardless of like, even if you think that they shouldn't feel that way, if you make someone feel that way, it doesn't really matter if you if you if your decision is like, well, they shouldn't feel that way because of what I did. Well, it's like the idea of capital punishment you know it's like um capital punishment is a totally understandable impetus from an emotional perspective and from a biological perspective like a revenge kind of protection of your of your group especially as a social animal so is there like a logical basis for it well the logical basis would be that it's instinctual right so why is it a bad idea? Well, it's a bad idea because we're trying to have a rational civilization where we come into all these compromises to get out of the nasty, brutish, and short sort of pitfall. And, and you have to try to think cerebrally above your just base reactions. This is why the justice system- I was going to say- idea- we're trying to flesh out this concept called justice in our human society, which is a fucking made up idea, you know, like everything else. But if it's not impartial, the reason you have a like, why does the justice system, like, why would there be a state monopoly on violence? Or like, why would you, because in mob rule, you're just going to react emotionally. When you react emotionally, it's like this instinctual thing. It's like, there's, it's not going to be helpful to society to continue to perpetuate a thing where you kill people for doing bad things. It clearly doesn't deter crime. So like 
the, the discussion would be like, well, why, especially if you believe in evolution and all these things, like, why doesn't it make sense? It's like, well, it does make sense to want to kill someone for doing something bad because it's basically understandable. The reason not to do it is we're trying to fucking appeal to this sort of, you know, I, I guess sometimes I feel like we're trying to trend towards a non-religious post-religion like like the starship enterprise bridge right everybody yeah. is from a different not just a different culture but a lot of times they're from a different species and they're all interacting together or a robot and <laughs> and, and the idea is supposed to be like it's governed by logic right yeah now you can have plenty of critiques like at the center of that is still like a bald white guy and so that's indicative of like our hierarchical systems but the metaphor extends and then like i just feel like that is breaking down more and more because what i was trying to get at was like how do you rise above just thinking emotionally about whether or not you're coming from my perspective like oh nothing seems like it fucking means anything or just thinking about like wanting to protect only your tribe and your clan and do whatever the fuck you can do for yourself you know like fuck the environment fuck like who cares about the next generation doesn't matter because i'm only here now it's like all those things like you kind of have to try to intellectualize yeah. and you tend you have to intellectualize them a little bit. And then the yeah. problem with that is the pitfalls is that when you go too far, and this is what I was bringing the idea of pragmatism for me is it you can start to unravel everything to where you're like, I don't even know what is happening in this moment or what I'm perceiving. You know what I mean? Like, and that is something that is very elucidated by mindfulness practice. Like when you really start to think like if you sit long enough with your eyes closed, you realize that like the conception that you have of your body is this amorphous cloud of sensation. Yeah. Cloud of sensation that is like that, that line is dissolvable. And it's like, so at what point can you keep investigating and also still be fucking functional? Yeah. And that's sort of the, the ballet act of being like a, an aware person. I feel right. Like. Unrelated. I think you might get a lot of, uh enjoyment out of this or at least some 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 uh knowledge out of this um i use the meditation like mindfulness app that i use is sam harris's app yeah um, so it's my, I, it, you, the waking up app you use the same yeah. one and I, yeah. I i knew that we we kind of felt the same because we appreciate that kind of here's a guy from a very scientific you know he's got a phd in neuroscience point of view he examines things on a scientific level but still has this kind of he definitely like you said elucidates a lot of things about awareness momentary consciousness and how everything is kind of just appearing in consciousness and i don't know if i fully understand those concepts at this phase in my life and i think it takes time like you know you're you're older than me and i'm sure you have a, a, a richer fuller understanding because of your own life experience than i do of a lot of these concepts but i'm glad that you glad to hear that you use that too and i would recommend that to, to other people to check out because if you're not kind of falling on one side or the other of how how to reconcile if you do think of these things and you have a hard time reconciling them i think that's kind of a good middle path to kind of to look at and someone who really has a, an interesting view of things. And uh, now that's cool. I was, you took the words out of my mouth. You, uh, you're already ahead of the curve there on that one. Well, I think that for me, because I, to, to, to your point of me being a little older, is that like when I was younger, I, I was very like able to inhabit these sort of dark thoughts about existence and, and meaning and internalize them in a way that was like, just focused on how I ingested art. And that was my way. That was my church, you know, like literature, 
music, films, paintings, those kind of things, like my ability to sort of process that thing. And, um, and, and then like drugs and alcohol, which is, and then as you get older and you realize more palpably, and a lot of this processing mortality, it always reminds me of the line in this Nirvana song, um, Francis Farmer will have a revenge on Seattle where the, the sort of chorus refrain is I miss the comfort of being sad, which is sort of like, I think that when you're young, there is a comfort in sort of wall. There's, there's like a youthful invincibility of still being able to process like being down and feeling like nothing means anything and being able to be like, I'm just going to listen to this fucking sad song a million times in a row. Right. While still kind of also feeling like you're the center of your own universe. Exactly. It's Vic. It's it's still like this very juvenile, self-focused overture of of uh, narcissism, you know, of like, like, I'm just going to. And when you get older, the ability of those things to palliate the reality of those fears lessens more and more, you know. Yeah. So for me, it became more like, OK, as I'm getting older and I'm like losing parents or loved ones or bringing a child into the world and processing things. Like I can't just like take a bunch of pills and fucking drink all the time, which is what I used to do, you know? And I just kind of realizing like, I'm going to have to do some work to the best of my ability to, to go through my biological process ending, like getting old and enfeebled and fucking dying, you know, and the people dying around me. It's like, and part of that is going to probably need to entail investigation into like in the inhabiting of thoughts like i have a lot of issues with like compulsion and anxiety and, and like and it's like what they Me would too. call peer, same peer obsessional things where it's like just turning the same fucking ruminative thought over and over and over again into my head and like trying to the same way that someone need, feels like they need to go like it's good for you to go on a brisk walk or go to the gym right you know we do these things where it's like New Year's resolution. I'm going to do all these things. I'm going to get fit. I got to eat clean, paleo, blah, 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 all this shit. And it's like, but we don't really clean house with how we think about things. And the way that most mindfulness is sort of pitched and sold to people is like another way for you to improve your productivity. And I would like to look at it. Another thing is like, hey, your productivity is bullshit. And if you think that that's going to save you from dying, it's not. And so maybe you need to, maybe I need to kind of try to prepare myself to unpack some of these things in a way that it's an evolutionary process for me over my life of how I'm confronting these same preoccupations I've had. And if I can't learn to grow, I think that the outcome for me is going to be increasingly unpleasant yeah. and all I have is my own experience. And, and so that's what I'm kind of trying to do. <laughs> <laughs> I got you, man. I got this. You covered, you've covered so much ground of so many questions and I love it. Like I've, I've, this has been an incredible conversation. I, I wanted to ask 
just as kind of the last kind of cap off question before we get in kind of the ending sections here that I always do. I'm sorry if I've just been. No, 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 no. Don't be, don't fucking be sorry whatsoever. This was an amazing conversation. Again, you covered like everything that I wanted to ask you kind of in my lens was kind of through very specific lyricism or very specific moments in your musical career, but you kind of covered it like throughout just the expanse of like your perception of your own existence as a human being, which is even better in my opinion. Yeah, I'm not trying to like uh, accept, or I'm not trying to like get out of talking about lyrics, no. but, I, but I do, do kind of like to not talk about no, them. You, um, you, this is better. Like, honestly, like I find this even more engaging and even better than kind of like at a more targeted level like that. My, my question following up this was how do you take stock of the moments of like joy and pleasure in your life? You know, uh, are there strategies amidst all of this and this kind of like, you know, I'm sure you're not thinking about this 24 seven, but like it does, it, it certainly feels like it, the, your awareness of this and your your perception of this would make it hard harder to kind of like internalize and kind of emotionally accept the moments of joy and pleasure that you do feel in your life kind of on on a cognitive level you know how do you how do you kind of ground quote unquote ground yourself you know and and take stock of you know moments where you're like okay i am feeling joy i am feeling happiness i am feeling excited you know i think that that's a very interesting question and i think that that's been a huge preoccupation of mine, even from the the um, sort of perspective of mindfulness, because if you're just living for those moments of joy, whether or not it's like playing a really good show or eating a really good meal or uh, the ecstasy of a sexual encounter or whatever kind of things, like they do, they just tend to represent a very small percentage of your life. And oftentimes, I think that what we forget sometimes is. Um, part of why obviously there can be like a flood of serotonin or oxytocin like on a neurological level but i don't i think most people if they're honest like even in moments of extreme pleasure we're very commonly projecting ourselves into the past or into the future hmm. and i think that what i've become more there's there's a german saying that a tour manager friend of ours told me once is like and i'm kind of paraphrasing obviously but this. it's like the definition of bliss is absolute concentration, which is very German. Um, but it, but it's true though that like it could be anything that you're focusing on when you're not in this constant shedding of like spiritual skin of just like I wish I had done this differently. What am I going to do tomorrow? What am I going to do? And you're just like, you're, you're just fucking it, waffling. It, it almost has to happen. Like every second that passes, you kind of have to be like dropping it off of you to kind of have and that so, kind of wherewithal to em, enjoy things or feel, uh, internalize joy and happiness and pleasure to the fullest. You have to constantly be like a, a snake shedding its skin every second. It sounds like. And then also, I think that you could probably relate to this. So often we have an experience, whether or not it's like you see a beautiful sunset or you're having a great time with friends, you're contextualizing that experience with a moment in the past by how good it is mm. relative to everything else. Yeah. You know, it's like, yeah. Oh, I really need to take this in. And that's a great thing to think that you need to be appreciative, but it's also still a part of the same process. It, it definitely feels like there are moments in your life and you can probably think on these. I would imagine you have your own. I have definitely have my own that are so crystallized, so pure, like, maybe it's when you were younger for me, it was like when I was in high school, because I didn't, I didn't have really a sense of my, I, I did. And I didn't paradoxically have a sense of myself. I just didn't give a fuck like what people thought. And like, I was, I was authentic 
I was totally authentic in the sense that I, I did a bunch of weird shit and like, I just didn't care what people thought. And it was so freeing. And like, I had moments where I'd like, you know, I'd have these simple moments where I'd be like, you know, having sleepovers with my buddies and we'd be playing video games and joking around. And it was so pure because I didn't care about anything other than like playing video games and like hanging out with friends and just like in jokes in the moment. And like those moments are almost like so crystallized that that it almost does set the benchmark unconsciously in moments where I'm just like, am I as happy as I could be? Because like, this is the benchmark that I have set for myself in that way, you know? Yeah. And there are so many, when you start to investigate um, the fragility of that kind of image in your mind, because I've had, yeah. I have the same kind of thing. It's like, you're projecting pat yourself presently back into a past that is like, your memory is completely unreliable. Yeah. Um, people would say there is no past and there is no future, you know, like, and whatever nostalgia is in terms of like what it's, it's function is, it's like, it's incredibly amorphous and, and not indicative of yeah. what it's actually like to be alive in a given moment. And it's like, and then, you know, we have this idea of ourselves, of course, now that I'm old enough, I sort of think back it, it, reality, even from, a um, Reality is very unfixed. And anybody who has, even as the organism we are, how we perceive reality, anybody who has experimented with drugs or had emotional problems um, can attest to the fact that, like, there are minute changes that you can make chemically, willfully or unwillfully, that just happen in your own brain, that completely alter the way that you experience being alive, mm. you know? Yes. And, 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 I can't help feeling that like when I look back, I'm, it's like, I'm the process of casting myself back into my past. It's like, I'm investigating a hallucinatory dream memory of this person. That's me, but really that person has been changing this entire yeah. time. And so we have these ideas, like the, the tenants of like, you know, you literally cannot step into the same river twice because it's not the same river and you're not the same man, right? Exactly. And then, and, and you know, the thing that's interesting about that, of course, too, is that, like, that's why it's so fascinating, the idea that we we think of those those memories of the purity of being with our friends and we're in our youth or whatever. You know, that that youth is very characterized what's by going on, what's going on biologically in our frontal cortex when it's not fully developed and we're 20 years old and our testosterone as men or whatever, or, or as biologically men or however you want to look at it, we're all in flux at different stages of our lives. Like not even bringing in the idea of gender identity into it. I, what I'm saying is that like when you're young, you're still developing and you're flush with all these emotions that are happening from all these organic changes in your body and then spiritual changes. And, and then we look back on it and we're older and we're like, we're using that as some sort of metric to judge where we are now. And it, it's just really not very representative, but we might use it as a way to govern the way we think about ourselves. I'm like, no, I'm this kind of person. And the truth is, is that even though people often are very inflexible in how they think and how they approach new things, they are changing all the fucking time. I think that it's like when you say step into the same river twice and how that's not possible, being able to be, willing to look at yourself in that way and yeah. not disassemble. Okay. Well, there's me. That's the me that's up here in my head. That's the real me from this almost sort of platonic, like there's the shadow and then there's the reality of truth, right? That that's all fucking bullshit. It's all just 
this one awash thing of like you're you're not separate from your body but at the same time the part that's very interesting is like whatever is going on i think it was oliver sacks that said this is he was just like he was talking about the cosmos and the nature of the universe like is it boundless the big bang all these the ideas of space time and he's like that's all great but it's like nothing is crazier than what's happening in the human brain and from his perspective of investigating psychology, right? Yeah, and, and the two, the two, a lot of people would say the two are inseparable. I mean, like what's happening on a macro level is happening on a micro level. Like Sam well, Harris in our app would start- say, you are undistinguishable from the darkness that you see when you close your eyes. Like you, that is your reality just as much as what you see with your eyes open, you know? Well, and of course, what you see with your eyes open is we think of it as like, oh, there's a table, that's a chair, but it's like, it's... That's a concept, yeah. And it's light and reflection, and those things are completely like, what does that actually mean? And of course, when you talk about space, well, if space is infinite, and space is still infinite relative to small spaces, like, what's the difference in size or magnitude or meaning between what's going on on a neurological level or what's going on on a cosmological level? Like, is the universe more substantive than the mind of not just a human, but any mammal, you know, like where is the, is there a center to anything? Yeah. And it would sort of seem a, with the more you empirically investigate, like, no, no, no centerless. <laughs> How many times have you heard that word in in that app centerlessness, you know, like, kind yeah. Of- yeah. And when I was younger, I would have thought like, okay, yeah, that's all well and good. Who gives a shit? That doesn't do anything for me. Like I have to get up and live my life and fucking like make money and, feed myself and feed my kid now i live in a society yeah yeah but as i get older for my for my myself as you and i were discussing i'm finding the investigation of those things to be more and more pertinent because it once again is going to allow me i think the best it's the best thing that like i'm a recovering addict you know like i use that as a as a way for a long time to sort of deal with these things from a, like a nihilistic perspective, like who gives a shit, but I'm also still like, I don't want to just annihilate myself and die. And now I'm like raising a family. I'm trying to figure out practically speaking, what can I do to try to ingest and understand these things and these processes that we're going through in a way to minimize my own suffering. And then thereby minimize the suffering of those that I care about that are around me. And in a way so. to, to quote a uh, health merch, don't the, don't kill yourself in a way to not kill yourself and lose yeah, your mind. I mean, and that's like, John came up with that as a, uh, you know, you see it backwards in the mirror. And for me, it works on so many levels because obviously we really care about our fans and we've noticed over the years that like a lot of our fans have, and it took me a long time to even kind of process that of like we, you know, to be at a show or to have someone send you a message where they're just like, Hey, especially more and more lately, we've had a lot of health fans communicate that like, I was in a really, really bad place. Like I wanted, I wanted to hurt myself and this album helped me process that and get through that. And, and a lot of that obviously comes from the lyrical content and like maybe as a way, like, humbly self-effacing and because our band has always been a small underground band it can be difficult to process someone communicating that to you and and now i've come to try to understand and accept it more that like 
so many people feel the way that I feel. Yeah. And, and if there's anything that I could do to help frame those experiences in a way that can um, exempt help- them further suffering, then that's yeah. like the, the greatest thing I could do. You're helping them take stock of those moments of joy with the the means that they have. And, you know, I was going to, I guess another one, though, question that just popped into my head. I do this podcast because it feels like there's a distinct lack of, there's a lot of focus on mental health, which is amazing and awesome. And we need everything that is there for mental health resources in the, both, you know, in the metal and rock media and beyond. But I think that there, there's this unspoken, untapped desire for like a, a sense of spiritual health, you know, kind of talking about the things that you and I are talking about. But do you think, do you think that there is, it is important for people to kind of learn to cultivate a sense of spiritual health, however you want to define spiritual. It doesn't have to be like how, yeah, how I got people it. would. Yeah. But do you think that- I mean, that's not how I, I'm talking about, I'm talking about my own spirituality and I think yeah. you understand from a, from a secular perspective. So, you know what I'm asking here? Like, what do you think about it? in the term, in the context of the, not in the, in the, in the creative landscape and like, you know, even with your fans, but in a general artist creative landscape, I guess. Well, I mean, not to get too hot button, like trendy kind of thing, but it really is true. It's like, I think now more than ever that I can recall in, in my own lifetime. And I think in a sort of singular way of one thing that I was talking about, when the conversation started is, is sort of the role that the, the almost incalculably important role that biology plays in all this, that we as biological organisms, even if we're talking about this, like hyper meta intellectual, like what is consciousness kind of thing? Like there still is this like, okay, well we're mammals. This is how we perceive things. We're visual forward. We're like what, you know, all these different kind of, and those Behavioral biology, evolutionary biology instincts have been fine-tuned, weaponized for our attention, for for consumerism, you know, just to keep you on your fucking phone. And I think that that has resulted in a heretofore, like, I think that the threat to any sort of spiritual profundity and maybe like connection to the pacific nature of actually being able to be just an animal and not constantly be hacked by like the algorithmic way that our fucking you know the, the grown beyond even companies control like how to just hijack our attention and to really keep us in a sense of like never being able to inhabit a moment you're just like what is the next thing I want to look at? How can I not, I can't sit with myself. I can't be, I cannot be still. I need to, I need to look at the past. I need to look at the future, but not just in a, a representational way or, or, a, or a, a abstract way, like with my devices, I need to be engaged constantly. And when I'm not the same way that anybody would, when, when a compulsion or an addiction is taken away, there's preference frustration. You feel uncomfortable. You feel anxious. Um, I think collectively people are feeling that shit overwhelmingly all the time now. So there's a way to talk about it like mental health, but yes, I think spirituality in that sense is a very important, it's like the exact opposite of the things that I'm talking about. You know what I mean? And so it's like to have 
anything in your life that sort of grounds you in spaciousness and 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 things being able to be slow and and be able to be aware of the moment rather than constantly engaged um beyond any sort of willpower or anything is very important now and i think that like if i can contribute to that in any way then you are that would make happier than anything else you are that's exactly what you're doing i think nobody who listens to this would doubt that you are that health is concerned for listeners spiritual health as much as their mental health and i think i think what you're saying is curiosity and more importantly we've talked about this word a lot awareness curiosity and awareness are two important incredibly important things to cultivate in your life that have kind of been stripped away you know with a lot of the things that you've mentioned and if you can help people kind of just you know pay attention to discovering their own a sense of awareness and a sense of curiosity to get to a sense of awareness and exploring philosophy spirituality and again i love the there's a phrase i think uh described by alan watts which is not a surprise that i'm saying it on this podcast he says that buddhism is not it's not a dogma. It's a method. It's a dialogue. Like it's not like people, you know, Buddhists. And of course there's Buddhists that take it to a religious and dogmatic sense, but at its purest form, it's a, I'm not speaking about Buddhism here in general, but it is a, it is a dialogue and it is a method to something. It is, it is, it is something that is handed out as like, try this. It is a method to something potential within you potentially. And I don't mean, again, I'm not speaking about Buddhism in general, but what we're talking about is like, there are things in this world that could be perceived as a method to at least marginally make certain experiences better and have you have the awareness and take stock of moments where you do, even in your own subjective T-truth life, you know how you feel. Like, you know how you feel. You feel in those moments where you know you feel pleasure and joy and a sense of whatever you want to define as happiness. That is important. It's important to remember that and to live in that for the moment that it's there and to remember and you know don't go back to it like we were talking about earlier but just have the awareness of hey that felt good it feels good and it's well, all I tools think, think there's something else you're bringing up and i don't want to go on to no no keep that made me touch on was just like from the vantage of buddhism um i think one thing that when i was talking earlier about existentialism and and, and defining your own meaning but also understanding how temporal that meaning is the time and place in which you were born the resources and and benefits that you have from being if you're in a in a industrialized wealthy country versus a country 200 years ago where there's like there's no technology all those things that's gonna in that moment define what your existence is but one thing that's undoubtedly true in terms of the western world and very much about things that we're talking about is, is this sort of, and we're talking about music and art in a, in a greater sense. We have this incredibly um, dense emphasis on individuality in, in American culture and European culture. Um, So-and-so is a genius. I'm an, I'm an artist. I need to do this thing. Uh, it's like Thomas Mann, the German writer basically said that like all artists are inherently sick in a way that, they can't, they're not just ingesting society like, oh, I'm going to live my life and like do things and, and try to be happy. It's like, no, no, people need to hear what I have to say. It's like this sort of diseased narcissism. And then as fans, because I'm a huge fan of art and music and other musicians and right. other 
other writers and 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 we have this god complex sort of thing of like oh well that person's they're so gifted and they're going to they're gonna we project so much on the idea of breaking out of the plane of normality and the the middle of the bell curve like it's going to accept us from these realities of meaninglessness and mortality and right if I, can get on the, if I can get on the pedestal that they're on i can get out of this yeah or and, and so like you we worship at that altar if it's if you're not a, if you're not a judeo-christian monotheistic whatever it's like and so i think that one of the things that you're talking about um it, it can be important and sort of freeing from a Buddhist perspective to sort of see that like this craving, this constant desire to have life be other than that, which it is, is the source of all suffering, which is like, you know, the sort of central tenet of Buddhism, which is not religious in any way. It's just like, just this desire, yeah. this drive you constantly have, for things to be other than that which they are is what causes pain and suffering. It's an astute and, observation rather than like a tenet of a religion. And I think that individuality as a, as a doctrine, it ha can have all kinds of interesting and um, there's a lot of richness that can come from that when we look at it from an arts perspective and from an empathy perspective. But at the same time, it does predispose us to be more locked into this isolation and pain and loneliness because we very much feel like no i'm just me and i'm supposed to be better and i i need something more and i need and it's like this isn't right why am i not whole i just want to fucking everything to change about me but it sort of the foundation of it is this notion that like this separateness. Yes. That I'm this, this, this unique entity. You're the little guy in your, behind your eyes and your brain is the, as our app always says, there's no little I, person moving the controls behind your eyes and between your ears. Exactly. And I think that that um, there's a humility to, to being able to sort of, let your thoughts and that coming back to what I was, what you were saying about the don't tell yourself sort of messaging is like trying your best to let your thoughts be to sort of just wash over you and not in, you don't have to inhabit every negative feeling that you have yeah. because when you do that, then you're fucking miserable. Yeah. Sam Harris, when he, in the app, he says, pay attention to where those thoughts go. Where do, where do they come? Where do they, where do they come from? Where do they go? Where did you come from? Cotton Eye Joe? But no, exactly. Exactly. Jake, that brings us to our two final segments of the show. First okay. up is, is Tomes of Wisdom, where each guest recommends us three pieces of media that have inspired them philosophically or spiritually in the last year. This can be books, films, games, comics, you know, anything that has made you think about your own life or life in the world in a different way. So, Jake, what are three pieces of media that you've consumed that you would recommend for, for us and for listeners to digest? Oh, in the last year, huh? I mean, I, I'm not going to be a stickler about it. If you if you got to go further back, then you got to go further back. That's no problem. Um, so I read a book called um, Buddhism Without Beliefs by, uh, I believe it's Stephen Baker, which is a great book um, for anyone who wants to sort of investigate some of the things that you and I were discussing uh, with it. But if you have like a innate 
sort of Richard Dawkins religion gag reflex like I do. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, basically sort of investigating a lot of the tenets that you and I were discussing from a Buddhist perspective that is grounded secularly. So there's no sort of like, oh, well, this was a, a prophet or Buddha is, um, you know, uh, a spiritual figure. It's just like, he's a historical figure. And then here's some of the ideas that are, and it's a very thin book. Um, so it's very easy to read. And that was instructive to me trying to process going through the sort of collective existential moment of the pandemic. I also reread The Plague by Camus, Albert Camus, which was a hugely defining book for me in my youth, in my early 20s, and was my favorite um, book. And it's what's so amazing about the device of that book um, is it novels and films and and poetry and uh, music so often can make the the listener or reader aware of themselves and their own mortality and the fragility of their own life on a sort of small case by case basis. And what he's able to do, it's an investigation of an outbreak of bubonic plague in a small Algerian coastal town that's actually occurred um, in the 20th century. Mm. And it's a fictionalization of that. And he's collectively able to make not just the reader, but the entire the ent- everyone in the book is having the same moment. And we've all had this experience. A, a friend's dad dies of a heart attack, or you find out that a- someone you went to school with has cancer and looks like they might die at a young age. And, and understandably, functionally, we're able to ingest that and just go right on with our day. You know what I mean? Because it's not us. And if we were to, to be truly absorbed by every person that's in crisis or in tragedy, you'd it'd be paralyzed. You wouldn't yeah. be able to fucking go out through, through it. So part of what this novel does is, is it, um, it makes it general for the entire experience of everyone in the novel, because they're all trapped in a quarantine city where thousands of people are dying a day in the streets. And it was incredibly insightful and moving for me to revisit that book in the context of a, of the most significant modern pandemic since the 1914 flu, because it was so fascinating watching how, how we all dealt with that in our own way. Because when you boil it down, really, I think for most people, all of a sudden everybody was having to confront their own mortality because there was an existential threat. And it could either be like, that's fucking bullshit. The government made that up, which is a way of also being able to say like, no, that kind of shit doesn't happen. Well, it's like, well, it actually does happen. It happens all the time throughout history. Um, Or to be incredibly terrifying, like I'm never going to go outside again. I I don't want to ever get sick again. It's like, well, you're going to get sick and you're going to fucking die. And you're going to have to deal with that. Like these are, and so that was incredibly powerful to me to revisit and i would i would highly recommend i mean the first book i recommended was interesting particularly because it pertained to the topic of the podcast but the plague by Camus is like a, is an absolute tour de force masterwork and then the last one that i would touch on just because we were discussing like the variable nature of perspective and perception and time and place in which we live sort of really informing what our experience is, is uh, 
Adam Curtis's most recent documentary, Trauma Zone, about the fall of the Soviet Union, is incredible. Hmm. Um, it's a, I think it's a six-part um, BBC documentary. That and it's entirely right my fucking alley. I'm going to check that out. Yeah, and it's entirely found footage. And if you're if you're if you're not a fan of Adam Curtis, I would highly recommend his other documentaries. But that's a great place to start. Unfortunately, he doesn't narrate it. I love his narration. He had he was whatever reasons to just use text instead of narration. So the entirety of the documentary is all text because it's subtitles from either this whatever country in the Soviet Union or Russia itself, and then all his sort of thoughts of how he organizes it are also on the screen. So you need some like, it'd be an excellent way to um, change up your entertainment routine because you have to really fucking pay attention. Yeah. Awesome. That sounds right up my alley. I'm definitely going to check that out. And so finally, this is the segment I like to call the chaser. So in the chaser, we ask the same 10 rapid fire questions for each guest. And we ask that they keep their answer to 30 seconds or less. Uh, and full disclosure, a lot of these things are concepts and things that we've talked about that you may be like, I don't fucking believe in this one way or the other, but uh, I guess just kind of frame it through the lens of of however you want to frame it and you can do whatever you want to do. So are you ready, Jake? Yeah, fucking lay it on me. Do you believe in fate or free will and why? I functionally do not believe in fate or free will. Um, that's kind of a complicated, I don't want to go too long. Fate in the sense that like there is pre predeterminism based on data that is incalculable and we're not able to, to call all of it and collate it. But in terms of the idea of free will that like you're going to elect the next thing you do because you are this autonomous spirit, I think is bullshit. And I think is um, not particularly helpful in a lot of ways. What is a stronger force in the world, love or hate and why? Oh, I don't know about that question. I think uh, hate probably feels stronger because it does more damage. And evolutionarily speaking, we, for reasons of self-preservation, um, we notice pain and negative um, outcomes more than we notice positive ones because that's how we keep ourselves alive. Who are slash have been the three most important spiritual and moral guides in your life and why? Spiritual and moral guides. Well, I'm not a spiritualist. Or philosophical. You can put it that way. Yeah, I would say Albert Camus as a as a writer. Um, Kurt Cobain, because of my upbringing and just how I first got into music. And then whew, who would be the third in terms of a spiritual writer? I think Oliver Sacks, just because understanding the absolute insanity of the brain has done a lot for me to not put too much emphasis or stock into my own into the validity or concrete reality of my own experience what was the most spiritual place for you where you grew up and why and this doesn't have to be literally spiritual it can just be a place oh, that you, you felt had a sense of power literally you, you didn't know how to define it at the time um the mountains snowboarding I grew up in Seattle and that was sort of my church. What is the most delicious meal you've had in the last month and where was it? Uh, it was at Taqueria Orinoco in Mexico City a couple weeks ago. Nice. When was the last time you felt lost? Mm, probably sometime this morning. Do you think the universe bends towards order or towards chaos and why? 
I don't think I'm qualified to uh, answer that question. Like, I, you know, I feel like I'd have to talk to a, a quantum physicist <laughs> to really understand. Um, Cause like, as I said earlier about the idea of free will and infinite data and knowing like that things are going to occur similarly based on if we had all the requisite subset in an instant, if everything is the same as it was the first time it happened, I think on a scientific basis, it's going to happen again, but I don't really understand how quarks and subatomic particles work. And I know yeah. that's what Einstein about it. It's why he famously said, God doesn't play dice. Um, whether or not he was specifically religious, it's like the idea of there being some sort of fun foundational symbolic way that we're able to interpret the word on a on a theoretical physics level that has I think that there is an element of chaos in it, but I don't understand it enough. I'm not I'm not a schooled or trained um, physicist. Hey, it's a good answer. Uh, what is the most important piece of your childhood that you've held on to and why? Either something, it can be something physical or something, an emotional tenet of some sort. The most important thing I've held on to from my childhood. I'm very much not uh, a person who holds on to objects. Part of the issue with that would be that my mother was a bit of a hoarder. So I think I had a reactionary uh, complex with that. I'm trying to think. Oh, my relationship with the sun, it's very interesting because one of the things we were talking about not being able to be able to be the people that we were, if I lay in the sun in the spring or something, it's sort of the closest thing that I have as a, as a totem that immediately projects me into a state of like timelessness of like not feeling like, am I in the moment like now? as an adult or a young kid, because there's some way that it grounds me physically where I feel like disconnected from, from any other point in my life. And I just feel free. Yeah. Almost in a so, way it is, it is the moment. Like it, 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 it lets the moment become perpetual kind of in that yeah. sense. So it's like, I, that, that's a very extremely grounding and maybe even to bring that back to, it's like sort of the idea of the mountains when I was young, but the through line of my life would be like, the ocean and the sun and the beach is sort of like a, it's like a reset button for me. And it always has been. What is one axiom or quote that centers you and calms you in dark times? All I know is that I don't know nothing. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. I'm hey, trying. That's basically Socrates. So yeah, exactly. Um, I'm trying to there. Oh, fuck. I have to paraphrase it. I have a child now. So there's, I can't remember which philosopher it was, but it might've been a modern psychologist, but watching my child, I think that there's, I'll paraphrase it as the, the readiness and willingness that children have to accept whatever they experience. If we as adults could even approach that, then you'd have the best chance at approaching the happiness that comes with an innocence that we're just completely disconnected from. So that's something I think about. I love that. I love that. And lastly, to everyone who has ever been touched by your words and music, what do you say? Thank you for listening. Jake, you have just engaged in psychic warfare. Thank you so much for joining me today. It truly means the world. Thank you very much for having me. 
Hey everyone, thanks again for listening to Psychic Warfare. If you like content like this for the rock and metal scene, it would mean a lot to me if you could hit subscribe or follow on your podcast platform of choice. Also, you can follow me at Risk with a K on Twitter, and you can follow the show at Pod on Twitter and Psychic Warfare Podcast on Instagram and Facebook. Thank you guys again for all the support, and I will see you in the next episode for another round of Psychic Warfare.